Uh, you know, years ago I was reading an article by a professor at Baylor University <clears throat> who apparently made all of his students read uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy for class. And he would ask them to, th to report what they thought about it afterwards. And there was one response that he highlighted in his article that I thought was fascinating. One young lady wrote up, she said, for some reason, after reading that book, I felt clean. And I thought, clean? That's a fascinating reaction. Maybe you could say that it's because of the literary genius of Tolkien, which I think would certainly be true. But I always puzzled over that. Why would someone feel that way, ennobled in that way, after reading those books? Well, my suspicion is because of the way, uniquely, that Tolkien wraps his Christianity uh, in the stories of that book, which, by the way, are far from evangelistic books. They're actually not even religious books. But, but the universe in which the stories occupy is one in which there are grand and vast and adventurous and noble visions of life, especially in the way they deal with kings. The central king throughout the entire stories is a man by the name of Aragorn. And he's only crowned king at the end of all of the three books. But when he does, there's this wonderful healing that takes place in all the land. This la one of the last little sections in the book was one of my favorites because it just felt like such a sigh to me. It goes like this. It says, In Aragorn's time, the city was made more fair than it had ever been, even in the days of its first glory. And it was filled with trees and with fountains, and its gates were wrought with mithril and steel. And its streets were paved with white marble. And the folk of the mountain labored in it. And the folk of the wood rejoiced to come there. And all was healed and made good. And the houses were filled with women and children and men and the laughter of children. And no window was blind nor any courtyard empty. And after the ending of the third age of the world and into the new age, it preserved the memory and the glory of the years that were gone. You just kind of want to sigh at the end of that, don't you? But I think, here's my premise this morning. I think that one of the reasons why those kinds of passages resonate with us is because from the Christian view of life, those stories are true. That is, we are ennobled whenever we read of kings coming into power because we are made to have a king who lives and reigns and heals us. And if our passage to be believed, there is a king who has taken his throne of the universe and has launched this great healing that even now is marching through history. Look, my children were all raised on the Lion King and thrilled to watch it every time. We watched as the kingdom was thrown into disarray, into darkness and death when the false king Scar reigned over the, the land. But as soon as the true king Simba takes the throne, what happens? Color, vegetation, life. I'm simply suggesting that those kinds of stories have the power to move us because they are true. They resonate with our souls very powerfully. We started last week a series through the book of Acts that we're calling Jesus Continued. And we were introduced to the central characters of the book, which are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, main characters throughout the book. But what we see this morning is really the inaugural event of the story. When I was a child, I kind of passed over this story, thinking that it was just kind of a fireworks moment in Acts. Like, cool, Jesus floated out of sight. I now have come to be convinced that when Jesus ascends to his throne, it is the pivotal moment for the whole story because it launches his mission in the world. And look, that's why I'm preoccupied with it because we are at a time now where we're considering what the mission of this church really is to be in this community. 
and my guess is as soon as I say that, there are as many opinions about what this church should be as there are people in this room, for sure. And so what we want to do as we journey through Acts is to get a sense of the nature and the scope of that mission. But, and whatever we can say about that, we have to realize that it begins with Jesus on his throne. So this morning, I simply want to put two ideas in front of you as we consider this this morning. First of all, clarifying the mission. And then second of all, the idea of empowering that mission. First of all, we have to make sure that we understand what it means to clarify this mission. And what you get in verse 4 and 5 is Jesus coming along and doing the anticipation thing again. And what he says is in verse 4 and 5, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Hear what he's saying. He's saying there's something coming. Something big is going to happen. There's, there's something for you to look forward to. And of course, what surprises us while we're reading this is how deeply Jesus taps into a cultural misunderstanding that the Jewish people of his day had when they began to think about that kingdom. And you see it very explicitly in verse 6. And I want to do a deep dive on verse 6 this morning here for a little bit because the disciples ask a very complex question. Take a look at it. It says, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That is a big question because in order to understand it, we've got to crawl up into the mind of what a first century Jewish person would have thought when Jesus was saying what he was saying. I would say that it's not going too far to say that a Jewish person had two central beliefs that guided their thinking about God's purposes in their world. Number one was this. A Jewish person believed that their God was the God. Any other claims to be God were false claims, and it was not real. Secondly, they believed that when the world fell into disarray through our first parents, that God had chosen the Jewish people specifically to be his own possession as agents of healing in the world, that they were the ones who were going to come and set the world to rights by being God's ambassadors in the world. So you can imagine how these beliefs would color just about everything they said and anticipated when Jesus is throwing out lines like there's a revolution coming. You can imagine. All the much more when this person who is standing in front of you, you watched die with your own eyes, but now is standing in front of you talking, raised again from the dead. Probably packed a punch right there. But remember, Jesus has been talking about his kingdom throughout his ministry, Right? And so with the shock of the resurrection in their bellies, they were probably thinking, at last, it's time to kick some tail. We'll set up a base of operations right here, Jesus, and we're going to march through setting the world to rights with us in charge. Jesus knows they're thinking this. Now look, it's easy to be hard on the disciples, but when you really start to see how much cultural and theological history were underneath this, you might be a little more gentle with them. Look, Luke is doing some amazing connections here in opening his book this way that I want to do by doing just a little bit of a Bible study. Bear with me for a second, but I want you to turn in your Bibles back to Psalm 68. Because that psalm gives us, I think, the sort of theological roots, as it were, of what's happening in Acts 1. Look, Psalm 68 is a poem about God's journey up to Jerusalem to take his throne there. You get this very cool, dramatic picture of a divine warrior king who, who's treading his enemies under his feet. Verse 6 says that the Lord leads out the prisoners in liberation and exodus as he takes his people to Mount Sinai. 
in verses 7 through 10. He talks about leading him into the land that he promised him through the wilderness. All the while, Yahweh is going to be the one who defeats all of these enemy armies so that they can possess it in verses 11 through 14. Finally, in verses 17 and 18, you get the Lord who ascends up to Mount Zion, that's Jerusalem, where the temple was, so that he can be enthroned. Listen to this in verse 17. The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. It's dramatic, right? There's victory over the enemies of God, followed by this victory march up the temple with all of this this glorious Yahweh surrounded by by chariots. And what he does when he gets there, we find out, is he's going to set up camp to make a new Garden of Eden, a place where his presence will be there. So the whole psalm ends in this doxology in verse 35. Look at that, where he says, Awesome is God from his sanctuary. The God of Israel, he is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Did you catch that? It's not just that Yahweh, when he's up on the Jerusalem throne, receives gifts from men, but then he turns around and gives gifts to his people. And you know what he gives? He gives power and strength to be a witness to the nations and to call them to submit to God. Okay, now does that sound familiar to anybody? (laughs) Do you hear the pattern? Look, throughout the New Testament we get this information that Jesus on the cross liberates captives from their bondage to sin and death. This is is Colossians 2.15, right? Where it says that on the cross Jesus disarmed and shamed and triumphed over the rulers and authorities. Now that he's risen from the dead, he's now ready to march up and to take his throne. That's exactly what Luke is referencing here. Jesus, in Acts chapter 1, is reenacting Psalm 68's uh, victory march, his throne march. You want to know why? Because Jesus is Yahweh, come in the flesh, who is now taking his throne. That's what Psalm 68 was prefiguring. But remember, verse 35 says that God is going to give, while he's there, strength and power to his people. Well, guess what we're going to study next week? Next week, we're going to look and see how it is that that power is the Holy Spirit. And when they receive that power, just like Psalm 68 predicted, you would be able to see the power of God from his throne. That's amazing. I know, and I realize it's a lot of information. But what it means then is it it helps us understand why Jesus can't take this question about them saying, are you going to set up your kingdom now? He can't answer that with a yes or no answer. You want to know? Here's the reason why. Because those two beliefs we talked about were true. The Jewish God was the only true God, and yes, the Jews were called to be uh, to the world this great repairer of it. But what the disciples misunderstood was what the kingdom was going to look like and how it was going to be enacted. Uh, Throughout the New Testament, we find that the disciples over and again thought that they were the special ones, right? I know what it means to be part of the kingdom, Remember when, remember when James and John go to Jesus and they're like, hey, Jesus, would you mind if we like got a sweet spot right next to you in your right left hand in your kingdom? Now, you and I know what they're asking for, but they didn't. And Jesus looks at them and kind of like, you don't know what you're asking for. And he began to see this dramatic tension where they realized that they were simply looking for a life of ease. They were looking for a place that exalted them. And so Jesus, he can't answer that question directly because he knows what they're thinking. 
But as I started looking through that, I started realizing, don't we do the exact same thing? How often do you and I wrestle with the same thing that when we come to God, we have an idea of what we think he wants to do. We are so certain about what God needs to do for you. And all of a sudden we find out that we were so certainly wrong about what we really needed. Garth Brooks used to sing a song called, Thank God for Unanswered Prayers. (laughs) Exactly. How many things have you asked God to do, but when you suddenly lived in it for a situation for a time, you realize, this is nothing what I need. Look, more times than not, when we begin to think about our mission in the world and what our purpose is in life, we think way too shallow. And in the short run, we get really confused. But if if the example of the disciples are teaching us anything, it's that we need to come and realize that what God is going to do is he's going to give us whatever it was that we would ask if we could see everything he saw. That's what he gives us. He grants us what we could see if we could see it all. And only in the midst of that can we hope to have a contented, non-anxious life. But that's the pattern. We go to God with felt needs, and he comes and answers us at the root of things. Look, honestly, we're now, we're now in our second year in this building. <laughs> and I can assure you that we have all spent, the staff, you know, not the least of which, and the leadership, thinking, all right, God, it's, it's, it's the fall. We're ready to launch. We've got all these great things that we want to do. And whammo, this whole thing comes back up. The pandemic seems to be relentlessly trying to stop us at every turn. Why? Because God says, that's not my way. It's not going to happen with you sort of filling out exactly what you think is going to be done. So God's people were those that allowed for God's providence to say, look, we're going to do what God has called us to do in the best way we can do it and leaving the fact that he's sovereign up to him. That's it. Changes the way we think about our plans, does it not? So that's the first point. We've got to get clear about what our mission is. Our mission is, is, is to subject ourselves to the king, not to be certain that we know what it's all about. Secondly, though, we have to see what Jesus does to empower the mission, right? How is it this going to be empowered, especially when you look at verses 9 through 11? In those series of verses, you actually get a repeated word. Now, ding, 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 when you're studying the Bible... And you see a word that gets repeated a bunch of times that tells you it's an important one. And did you realize that there were four times in those verses that they used the word heaven? The angel looks and says, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven. Now look, this is where misunderstanding starts. And what I want to submit to you is, if you misunderstand exactly what Jesus is talking about when he talks about going to heaven, it's going to mess up a lot of your theology. A lot of it, as a matter of fact. And I simply want to dive into this by asking this question. Exactly where did Jesus go when he went to heaven? And why would he do that? I mean, if this is a whole resurrection body and everything, would it have been best for him to stick around? Haven't you ever thought about that? I kind of wish he was still here. I wouldn't have to do all this defense that he really exists there. What's the deal? Well, in order to dive into that, I want to read a quote of what I think is a great beginning definition of what the Bible means or what a Jewish person would have thought when they talk about heaven and earth. It's from a guy named N.T. Wright. Listen to this. He says, in the Bible, heaven and earth are two halves of God's created world. But they aren't so much like the two halves of an orange, more or less identical but occupying different spaces. It's more like the weight of an object and then the stuff that it's made of. Or perhaps the meaning of a flag and the cloth of paper it's made of. 
In other words, it's two related ways of looking at the same thing. Two different, though interlocking, dimensions. The one perhaps explaining the other. Talking about heaven and earth is a way in the Bible of talking about the fact that as many people in many cultures have perceived it to be, that everything in our world has another dimension, another reality that goes right along beside it and with it. Okay, so for a Jewish person who is looking at the world in this way, you begin to realize he's got a material world that's got like ground and sky and, and trees and people. But there's another reality, there's another dimension, if you will, that exists right alongside that, if you just see it from another perspective. Heaven, therefore, is God's space. But, but that space, if we can even really call it that, is quite near to us. It's not, as Stevie Wonder assured us, 10 zillion light years away. Nobody even knows who Stevie Wonder is anymore. Is that what's happened? Is that what's happened to us? But that's where Jesus went, to that realm. And the reason why he did so is so that he could take, his father's pl- his, take, take a place at his father's throne, right to the right of the throne. That's what Acts 2, 23 will say. Peter's going to say next week that he is exalted to the right hand of God the Father. In ancient times, the person that was to the right of the throne was like a prime minister, the one who was responsible to execute all the actions coming from the throne. But see, what's happened is, is over time, and my guess is it's probably because of of Gnosticism, uh, maybe a little bit of paganism mixed in there. We tend to think of heaven as this sort of um, disembodied spirit world, right? Where, you know, we're kind of like wafting through the eternity as like, I don't know, misty ghosts or something like that. That's not the Bible's view. Because if we think about what heaven is, yes, there are spirits there. But we don't have to think about those spirits as invisible in that realm. I mean, we know that Moses is there. We know that Elijah is there. We know that Enoch is there. But what we rarely realize is Jesus is there and he is still in his body. You recognize this, right? Jesus still has a body. And it's the kind of body that you and I are going to get one day when he comes back and takes us there. In other words, heaven is not less real than earth. It's just the opposite. It's more real. It's thicker than our three-dimensional space, only more vibrant, more colorful, more real, if you will. Man, I wish we had more time to talk about that. But look, if you wrap your mind around the fact that that is where Jesus is reigning from, from heaven, you'll see that that's super important because now you can realize why he decided to go to heaven. Let me me ask you this way. What what does a Christian gain by Jesus being in heaven and not physically here with us on the earth? That's a great question. And it's important to understand that though Jesus, though though heaven is, is in the same sort of realm as earth, it's different. It exists above space and time. What that means then is from the perspective of heaven, Jesus can see both the beginning and the end of my life. All at one time. It's all a single thing for him as he sees it. And what that means is, is if he's reigning from that place, he can minister to all people at all times. Not just the people 2,000 years ago in Palestine. Uh, Students asked me this for 25 years. I just don't see what the life of somebody who lived 2,000 years ago would ever have to do with me. And of course the answer is, (laughs) the reason why it has to do with you is because he's reigning from heaven. 
And from that vantage point, he sees everything. This is why Paul talks the way he does in Ephesians 1.10 when he says that Jesus, at the right hand of God the Father, is there to execute, listen, a plan for the fullness of time to unite things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Did you catch that? The whole plan of human history is God pushing heaven and earth back together. The reunification of all things. That's why the whole Bible ends in Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, with this cry, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Heaven and earth back together again. You, know, you see that? That's going to bake your noodle. That's more beautiful than you know. Keep studying. <laughs> but I want to finish this morning by asking this question. Okay, so what? What could this possibly mean for us? Jesus sitting on his throne. Well, three things at least, I think. The first is this. When Jesus takes his throne over all of the cosmos... He moves his work from inside of us to outside of us. What do I mean by that? I think that we have a tendency, especially in American Christianity, to think of the essence of being a Christian in terms of what we might call personal salvation. I ask Jesus into my heart, and now I'm going to go to heaven when I die. Now, I'm not suggesting that Christianity is less than that. Of course not. But if Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father over all things... It means that Jesus cares about stuff more than just inside of my heart as well. And the Bible is full of this idea that what God does in the heart, he expects to come out in the world around us. Which means that Jesus has opinions about justice and injustice in the world. That Jesus has thoughts about poverty and how people can get stuck in it. We also believe that Jesus is working through people who actually don't even really believe in him through a power that we've come to call common grace. You've heard me talk about this before. This is this simple idea that even people who care nothing about Christianity can produce great art. They can come up with great ideas about how to run a country. They can, they can write moving literature. And they can show all kinds of wisdom. Why? Not because being a Christian is useless, far from it. But because Jesus is seated at his Father's right hand. And all things exist by him and for him and through him. So there's this idea of his enthroning. making It's more than just what's going on in me internally. It's about the world around me. Secondly, when Jesus ascends to the throne, it means that now he's universally accessible. This blew my mind when I was studying this a couple months ago. Look, if heaven is outside of the limitations of time and space, it means that from his vantage point, he sees all of time. Tim Keller has a chapter on this in one of his books about uh, the, the resurrection of Jesus where he clarifies what's going on in John 20. Do you remember the story after Jesus rises from the dead and the first person he sees in the garden is Mary? And, of course, Mary is so thrilled to see him that she races at him to throw her arms around him. And Jesus says something really, really interesting. He says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now, when I read that as a kid, I thought, oh, that's because Jesus is too pure. Or that's because Jesus is too ghost-like, right? Maybe she couldn't have really grasped him because he wasn't really there. It's not at all what he's saying. What Jesus is saying is, Mary, I don't want you to cling to me in my present form. You want to know why? Because Mary, right now, I know that you want me to stay like I am. You want me to be in the body. 
But here's the thing. If I don't ascend up into heaven, something much better won't come. Why? Because here's the deal, Mary. No matter where you end up, if I'm on my throne in heaven, I can be there with you. doesn't matter, Mary, whether your future ends you up in a dungeon. I'll be there. It doesn't matter if you end up somewhere out in the world. It doesn't matter. I will be there. Don't cling to me in this form. Every time you're feeling alone and abandoned, Mary, I can be there. You want to know why? Because I'm at my Father's side in heaven where I see it all, not just people way back then. Hey, look, think about how that changes our mission. Think about that. We don't go out with the dead memory of a, of a Savior who we're kind of making up, wink, wink, he rose from the dead. That's not what we're saying. We're saying he is near us and is presently, today, reigning and ruling over the entire cosmos. That's a little bit of a different posture, wouldn't you say? Thirdly and finally, we need to remember what it is that Jesus is actually doing at the right hand of the throne. And what we find in many other places in Scripture, and we'll look at this a whole lot more when we get to Acts chapter 7 and uh, Stephen, is that uh, he's being my lawyer there. That's a big deal. I just want to introduce this idea. Hebrews 7.25 says Jesus always lives to intercede for them. 1 John 2.1 says if anyone does sin, he has an advocate with the Father. Look, I got, a, I got a ticket when I was in high school. You wouldn't know that I was quite as lawless as I, as I was when I was in high school. But I got a ticket, passing on a double yellow line and speeding. Turns out I had to speed in order to pass on said double yellow line. <clears throat> I won't get into more of the details. But it turns out that when you got a ticket as a teenager uh, in the place where I lived up in Memphis, uh, I had to go to traffic court with the rest of my, um, <laughs> with the rest of my delinquents uh, uh, there in the courtroom. And I didn't realize until I got there that they made you actually get up from your seat and walk up in front of the judge while he kind of read you what the charge was. And you could have stood there by yourself and he said, okay, this is a charge against you. How do you plead? And my somewhere middle of the road puberty voice was like, guilty. <laughs> and I'll never forget that feeling because for whatever reason, maybe it was just in the fact that I had to utter it. I've never felt more exposed in my entire life. I thought to myself, man, you are at this brother's mercy right now. And all of a sudden I was like, ding, ding, ding. That's why lawyers exist. <laughs> Think about it. You only look as good to the judge as your lawyer looks. You ever thought about that? If your lawyer is slick and professional, you got a chance. If he's aloof and disinterested, you might get a bad verdict. Look, what we're going to find that Jesus is doing up on his throne in heaven is he is advocating on your behalf to his Father. And because he's in heaven, <laughs> it means that he has his Father's ear. Hey, look, what centers all of our mission into this world and into this community is that we're coming with good news. We're coming with good news. Is because Jesus died on the cross, we can stand before him and our lawyer can plead our case. And here's the crazy thing. He's not making anything up. It's not that he's trying to pull a fast one on the judge and pay off the jury. He's got a case. Because for all of the sins that, that I bear, Jesus goes to his fathers and says, Look, Father, don't you see? I'm wounded for Les Newsome. Yeah, I was wounded in his place. You're not allowed, Father, to exact two punishments for one sin. And I've taken his, so he's free. He's yours. He belongs to you. 
That's what he's advocating for us on our behalf. Hey, what if that was what we were bringing to the world? What if that was the essential message, one that was centered in joy and opportunity? Why? Because Jesus is on his throne and he reigns from heaven. See what that does to us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you lead us into it because we so desperately need for your guidance, Father, to live in the midst of that joy, to see with eyes of faith that there really is a heaven around us and from that perspective you see it all, to know that just on the other side of a simple little veil that's mostly marked by our blindness, there's an entire world, an entire world, a realm in which you reign supremely and everybody there acknowledges that you are the king And so we want to do now here on earth as it is in heaven by praying and singing praise just like you're doing now in heaven. Father, let us join those angels even as we speak, as we sing. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.